1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Religion. I'm Marshall Poe. As you may know, if you listen to New Books in Religion, I am, in fact, not the host of the channel. I am the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I really wanted to read the book that we're going to be talking about today. So I'm poaching New Books in Religion's territory, and I'm serving as a kind of guest host on the channel. The book that I really wanted wanted to read is by Joshua Dubler, and it's called Down in the Chapel, uh, Religious Life in an American prison. And it's a really interesting book. It's interesting it as a piece of scholarship because it's really, well, I don't know if I should say this. I, I don't know if I can say this. It's like no other piece of scholarship I think I've ever read. Uh, it's, it's, um, uh, D- Joshua happily puts himself right in the story and that makes it really fascinating and interesting. And he also tells us a lot about religion in American prisons, uh, which is which is something that you sort of see on TV and hear about on the radio and so on and so forth. But this is what we would call the, uh, the straight dope about what goes on. And so uh, the first thing I want to do is thank Joshua for writing the book and welcome him to the show. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. My pleasure. Could you kick the interview off by telling us a little bit about yourself, Joshua? Yeah, I'm uh, an assistant
0: professor at the University of Rochester. Uh, I did this work when I was getting my graduate degree in religion at Princeton. Uh, I'm from New York City, and uh, I assume, uh, given the way that I impose myself on, on the narrative, uh, more of my
1: background will come up over the course of the next hour. Yeah, no, I think that's right. You make a very good point there, because um, you bring things to the table. And, and the thing about it, the interesting about the book is that every scholar brings things to the table. It's just you're honest about it.
0: <laughs> um, you know, I do one of the uh, animating impulses behind the experimental form, and, and and there are a great number of them. But one of the animating impulses is, um, you, you know, I, I don't think the book is reinventing the wheel. I think it's I think it's positioned in in a rather rich tradition of experimental ethnography. But one of the things that I'm trying to do is to break down the the, the kind of uh, unthought um, way that. Uh, writing a book necessarily uh, divides the world into those who write and those who are written about. Um, So uh, bringing myself into the frame uh, in some way, I I was hoping it would have a a leveling effect.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you did. One of the purposes of the New Books Network, we deal with new books mostly by scholars, is to uh, demonstrate to people who don't write books that uh, these artifacts do not fall from the sky that they are parts of people's lives. and in this case, it was a really a big part of your life. It kind of took over your life um so that th- that that's really terrific for us because it does you know the book is about your experience and and full stop and that that's a really great thing. I think it, it tells people a lot about the way these books come about,
0: yeah, and not to not to skip to the end, but um uh, you know one of the animating um I guess tensions in the book is uh, i 'm uh, I'm in fact uh, a practicing a jew somewhat, but I would think of myself as epistemically and deep down um, a secularist and uh, uh, i 'm in dialogue with uh, with men who have very fierce uh, religious commitments um, so in and, and making sense of uh, my way of being in the world to them and their way uh, way of being in the world to me uh, is really, I think, some of what makes the the book very interesting. So this is apropos of you saying that in some way uh, the book took over my life. So one of the ways that I make sense uh, of of what we have in common, these men as religious men, me as a secularist, is uh, via... Alain Badu's notion of fidelity to the event. So, uh, definitely, a, a man who gave himself to Christ on such and such a day tries to live in fidelity to that event and to that feeling of fervor and certitude that he had uh, in a moment where he where he sh- became someone that he wasn't before. Similarly, uh, a man who took his shahada on such and such a day uh, has a similar relationship to a moment in his past. And as I and, and as I allude to toward the end of the book. Um, you know this book the 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 time that i spent doing this fieldwork uh uh has such a a structural um uh relationship to to who i am um and and needs to you know this is a book um uh that comes from um a kind of political imperative and it's the kind of book uh who, the, the justifiability or the, the the success of this book to to some significant degree will be determined by uh, do I live the rest of my life uh, um, in infidelity to uh, what I learned and the men that i that i that I got to know and uh, and, and do I, do I embrace those obligations so this is just apropos of the book having taken over my life yeah. I, I, I I embrace that
1: yeah I mean I like what you say and it kind of parallels my own experience about i, I am I am. I do practice a, a a faith, I guess I would say, and uh, 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 but I am surrounded by people, especially in the academy, who do not and are much more secular than I am, and I'm quite secular. Um, the people that I practice this faith with, though, have a very fervent belief in God. I mean, like in, yeah. the, in the in the in the big G sense. Yeah. Uh, and 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 I deal with them a lot, and, and it's been kind of transformational for me to to, to try to be with them. And um, and for them to try to be with me, I imagine. Right. <laughs> so, uh, and and this is something I think about quite a bit. So let's get let's get into. Let me ask you one question before we talk about the book. I, 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 you kind of already answered it, but why did you write this book?
0: Yeah. So I, I would say, like, let's deal with the with the two the two different radicals. So uh, on the one hand, um, religion. Uh, it seems to me that the study of religion is is uh, is populated with. Uh, with people who, with an emphatic ambivalence to the tradition of their upbringing, uh, that seems to be often be the calling, or yeah. if not an emphatic ambivalence, at least at the moment in your twenties when you're figuring out what the hell you're going to do with your life, you have an emphatic ambivalence. So that's true in my case. Uh, my ambivalence uh, was not uh, was not tortured at the moment that I chose this career, but uh, you know, I was I was raised by um, essentially. Orthodox is a slight exaggeration, but Orthodox agnostic Jews, and when I figured out that that's who I was being raised by when I was 17 or 18 years old, uh, I got into the study of religion in college, and, and read Durkheim, and so on and so forth, and so it, it was kind of that, that was the calling, uh, to study religion. Um, as for prisons, um, I, I was I was raised by uh, by leftists. Um, I was born in 1974, um, so, you know, when I was six years old, uh, when, I was, when I was born, there would have been, uh, you know, 300,000 people in prison uh, in this country, and by the time I was uh, 30, there would have been uh, well over 2 million. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, the ex- you know the explosion of incarceration that is you know sometimes called mass incarceration in the United States uh, has been, to me, one of the, uh, just a defining characteristic um, uh, of our age. Uh, and so I, I felt called to that, too, uh, uh, from the time that I was a, a young person mm-hmm. uh, to try to uh, engage with that, try to combat
1: that uh, in some way. Mm-hmm. Well, I very much admire you because I, I kind of went through a similar experience, not with prisons, but with religion, but much later in my life where I, mm-hmm. I would not say I went back to the same church I was born in. I was born a Lutheran. I mean, I was raised a Lutheran. I'm not a Lutheran. Mm-hmm. But but I, and now I do think about it a lot. And I mean, I do practice it. And I, and I see the value in it that I couldn't uh, in my Holden uh, 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 uh. Caulfield days when everybody was a faker. Um, I, your, I'm
0: sorry, in your what days?
1: My, my Holden Caulfield days. You know, Oh, your like, Holden yeah, Caulfield yeah, days, yeah, yeah, yeah. When, like, yeah, when yeah. everybody was a faker and it was all,
0: right. it was all BS. Our, and... our, I would say, you know, at our best, we're fakers. <laughs> uh, I'll tell, you know, my my, my 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 life partner, would I think she would wish that I would fake it a little more. I'm, I'm very comfortable with just how lazy uh, and abject uh, that I really am when I'm with her. But, you know, but when we're trying to be better people than, than we happen to be, to be, yeah. uh, whether it be professionally or whether it be ethically, uh, we're, we're we're always uh, uh, faking. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, I'm, I'm thinking of a, a woman named Jennifer Hart who wrote a book called "Putting on Virtue" yeah. that uh, that does a kind of Aristotelian spin on, on virtue ethics, and yeah. uh, and that's her point. You know, it's like yeah, we're of course we're faking,
1: yeah, yeah. which well, is
0: funny. You because know, I mean, you're, you're alluding to you know one of the themes in the book because uh, you know we do one of the the knee jerk assumptions that I assume that some readers will bring to the book is that uh, the men in the book are fakers, right? right. Because of the way that we conceptualize religion uh as this kind of um uh relationship to one's ultimate concern right. and the way that we conceptualize prisoners as you know defined by their crimes so this person is just a rapist or a murderer, uh then we then we assume that when a prisoner professes a religious faith that uh that he or she is just faking it.
1: Right. I mean I'm glad you mentioned that because more broadly and this was true in my own life, I'll just speak from my personal experience, for many years I just thought to myself about religious people. They can't really believe that. I mean, come on. Nobody, right. no rational person could really believe that. Right. Which is just silly. I mean, I look back on it and I mean, I was just not only incredibly arrogant, but kind of dumb. I was
0: just like, yeah. You know, yeah. You know, I I, I have to assume uh, as a starting point that people uh, believe what they say. Yeah. I mean, no, I think it took I mean, me a long time to get to that. You know, uh, uh, Charles Taylor's notion of the imminent frame, like does kind of assume that there's something about modernity, that if you have that kind of faith commitment, then you are in some kind of sense, always already opting in, mm-hmm. like it doesn't, that it doesn't come uh, kind of naturally and unthought. I don't know. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I mean, I think that um, uh, at a place like Greaterford prison, and, and I would say that Greaterford prison in this regard is just a place in America. um uh, people generally assume that that you know, as they would say, God is who He said He was. Yeah. You know, uh, whether that be through a, a Christian or a Muslim framework, uh, the assumption that there is a a God, roughly like uh, the one that we encounter uh, through the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament and the Quran, and that He made the world in some you know in some relationship to us humans and, and, in 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 and in relationship to me uh, as an individual, that's like that, that idea comes naturally to, to most, to many of our countrymen. Yes. I think that's absolutely women.
1: right. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. It was, it was really only after I got into academia that I started not to think, I mean, I really didn't think like that anymore. I was taught not to think like that and I'm not saying academia is a bad place or that it secularizes you or whatever, but yeah. um, it was, it was a learned behavior and it was a learned reaction on my part. And, and it took yeah. me a long time to wrap my mind around the fact that most people weren't like me, even though, you know, I was like from the Midwest and I grew up in a humble background and church going people. And, you know, but still I, I, and there was an arrogance involved in it, I have to say. But anyway, that's good. enough about me.
0: Well, about arrogance, <laughs> but you know, but we're all provincial in our own way, you know. And and uh, that's some of the joys of doing ethnography is that you, uh, you, your own, you know, your own provinciality is thrown into stark relief, and and sometimes in in dialogue with people that you're uh, writing about, and uh, you know, you you uh, enable a certain kind of uh, critical reflection on, on on their ways of being mm-hmm. in the world, and that mm-hmm. you know, those are uh, you know, coming out of uh, a tradition of going back to, to, to Plato, you know, uh, those moments are, uh, you know, some of the best moments that the world has to offer.
1: Mm-hmm, 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 exactly. Yeah. i was just teaching Plato. You should mention it. Um, so what how did you, 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 how did you end up in a greater for prison? Why there? Uh,
0: greater for prison. I mean, I think, um, uh, because they would let me in, is the, is the simple answer. I mean, I was, so I was doing my degree at Princeton at the time, and, um, you know, you do ethnography where you are. I had been doing volunteer work uh, in the New Jersey system, and I had gotten permission to do uh, this project at Rahway. Um, And, uh, and then the permission was revoked uh, for reasons that uh, were never made exactly clear. But um, basically, New Jersey at the time had no uh, uh, human subjects review board at all. It was totally ad hoc. Uh, Hmm. And they had a a Secretary of Corrections who seemed to have his heart in the right place. Anyway, so he suspended it. before I began, and then so I looked to neighboring states pennsylvania 's uh, system, in part because um, uh, the the Philadelphia Society for the alleviation of public miseries, uh, the group that in some way uh, designed the prototype uh, of the penitentiary um, back in the uh, in the seventeen eighty uh, 90s um, uh, they became uh, the, the Pennsylvania Prison Society, and uh, they 're a kind of insider watchdog group, um, uh, and they are allowed access to everywhere in the system. So as the system has developed over the past 200 uh, plus years, it's just a system that, a state system that's relatively porous. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's easier, uh, to, uh, to get into, uh, a Pennsylvania prison than it is to other prisons. Mm-hmm. And Greaterford is the, I call it the, the cultural flagship of the, of the Pennsylvania state system. Mm-hmm. It is, uh, you know, it's 30 miles outside of Philadelphia. Um, it's, uh, it's a, it's a prison that in many ways, uh, is Philadelphia soil, uh, both because of uh, you know the people who work there, the people who are incarcerated there, uh, the volunteers who come in to do programming. You know, it's 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 a downstate facility. It's a relatively vibrant place. A lot of people come and go. Uh, not like it used to be. And perhaps we'll talk about the kind of administrative shift that happened in the 90s, uh, where you know a sort of culture of control, such as it is, was instituted. But it still is is, is a place with a fair amount going on. So when I when I petitioned the the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections. It seemed to them like the obvious place to do the project.
1: Mm-hmm. And what did they do with you? I mean, how did they let you in the prison? And you know, what kind of access did you have?
0: Um, startlingly unfettered access, uh, at least in theory. So I had asked them um, uh, only for access to the chapel because my um, uh, my requests. I I thought that a prison administrator would regard it as frivolous uh and they came back and essentially you know said that I could go wherever I wanted um I mean it's a uh, Greaterford is an old prison. It's not, you know, I think that uh, this, this will vary prison to prison, state to state. But certainly the new prisons that have been built in the last 20 years that are built to be much more controlling, uh, I assume that, you know, one of these prisons has your movement, from my experience, is much more regimented. Uh, at a place like Greaterford, like once you're there, you kind of blend in uh, and you um, it's uh, it's not hard to to move around. I mean, you have the right to move around. As a volunteer, you need to be escorted. But if you're an employee, you can, uh, or I, I was officially an intern, you can go where where you want. Um, it so happened, though, that uh, I uh, assimilated certain kinds of mores from the chaplains. So um, while I had the the right to go wherever I wanted, the chaplains, uh, as a general rule, um, don't go to the cell blocks unless they have. A particular business there. Um, I think that has to do with a certain kind of um, the, the, the discomfort of the experience, um, uh, a desire to um, maintain their relationships with the with the with their parishioners and especially with the men who work in the chapel um, to to kind of uh, deal with them as colleagues and not necessarily as men who are locked behind bars where you see everything that they have in the world. Uh, so that so the chaplains have that kind of. Uh, unwritten understanding of how they move in the prison and uh, I followed their lead on that for better uh, or for worse. Um, I had wanted to go to uh, the, the block, or the cell block where the parole violators live uh, to see their Bible study and I asked a few times and I was always kind of brushed off. So anyway I ended up assimilating that um, and I, there were definitely prisoners uh, uh, who said that I was making a mistake in doing so because uh, you know it's really on the cell blocks where the of uh, the prison takes place, but um, I uh, tend to embrace uh, arbitrary uh, boundaries in terms of uh, research and also especially in terms of writing. So uh, so anyway, so that was the choice that I made in the field.
1: Mm-hmm. And what sort of rights do prisoners have in such a prison to religious practice?
0: Um, a great many rights, I mean, relative to the other rights that they enjoy. So, I mean, I think the way to think about it is um, you know we we, we think of uh, the First Amendment right to free religious exercise as a as a as a founding principle uh, and it is but it's it's only in the, in the twentieth century that that comes to be interpreted and prisoners. The front of prisoners' rights was a was a key front uh, uh, in that struggle. So you had um, a, a bunch of Supreme Court cases in the 1960s brought by uh, people who didn't want to go fight in Korea, uh, even though they were uh, Buddhist or secular humanists, and and the law at that time was that you had to affirm a belief in a creator god. Uh, so that expanded the notion of what counted as as religion under the under the First Amendment. Uh, but then you had in the late in the in the in the 60s and 70s you had uh, uh, prisoners, uh, uh, suing, uh, um, uh, their, uh, the state, um, in order to have the right to practice religions that up to that point weren't recognized. Uh, The the sort of, the most notable being uh, members of the nation of Islam making Mm -hmm. space for Islam in the prisons. And so anyway, that was, that expansion was pretty radical. And the principle of equal protection, uh, even if the court has kind of gotten out of the regulating religion business somewhat, the principle of equal protection applies. So you have, um, you know, one of the uh, kind of opening gambits of the book is that uh, I, I, I say how I said to my advisor, after uh, a number of months at the prison that that uh, the, the chapel at greaterford prison was is the the most religiously diverse real uh, sliver of real estate in the history of the world right? and <laughs> you have like this you have this like two three acre plot of land in which uh, twelve religious denominations share space uh, and so and that that's all that infrastructure is is uh, is now embedded in the law and in the administration so you know the expansions that took place in in, in prisoners' religious life in the '60s and 70s were uh, were paralleled by expansions in uh, counseling opportunities, educational opportunities, uh, things of that sort. Um, now, the, the, the shift to the, to the era of carceral control that's accompanied uh, the rise of mass incarceration you know, has led to radical restrictions on those other things, most notably in the 90s where prisoners uh, were, no, were declared no longer eligible for Pell Grants uh, so as to pursue uh, college mm-hmm. educations. So that stuff was taken away in the current era, but uh, you can't take away uh, religious rights. Um, so prisoners, you know, they, they have the right to go down to the chapel, um, uh, you know, and, and it, it's, it's a right that is um, – that in some way belongs to an older era because it can't be taken away.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, and though your book is an ethnography, I hate to ask these sort of statistical questions, but I'm just interested. What percentage of prisoners at, at Graterford or broadly sort of participate in yeah. the, the religious life of the, the chapel in a prison?
0: Yeah. It's uh, like – it's it's a, it's a guess but you know from from kind of tallying it up you know so greaterford has maybe 3500 men and i would say that on your in an average month uh somewhere like a third of the men in the jail uh will come down to the chapel. Now that doesn't give you an exact answer to your question yeah. because, you know, American American religionists are are famously um individualist and anti-institutional. Yeah. So certainly among the Muslims um uh and and as well, you know, among the Christians, although the dominant groups, you have people who uh, have faith commitments and who engage in in, in practices, uh, religious practices, but who don't come down to the chapel mm-hmm. for one reason or another. But uh, but I yeah I I estimate it as uh, just from counting up the numbers as a uh, as a third. I, you know, and in, in like in Ramadan, I, I would assume that that number is is higher.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. So tell us a little bit about the chaplaincy there. Um, who who are the people who serve as chaplains? How many are there? And can you just introduce us to them?
0: Yeah. Um, there are five at the time that the book takes place. Um, the, the head chaplain, uh, is a, um, a liberal Lutheran, uh, jazz musician is there any Um, other
1: kind really i (laughs) (laughs) i
0: didn't i guess i guess he is a stereotype Uh, but he's he's a new stereotype to me but uh he's a he's a he's a pluralist and a liberal he actually got a phd in hebrew bible at drop there you go which is a a jewish seminary (laughs) um and uh and that and so he it's really um he i mean the the, the, the agencies which account for the range of religious practices at Greaterford are many. Uh, the chaplains, uh, all of the, the prisoners, the administrators, but he, he I think, uh, exerts a rather uh, influential role. Uh, he's called Reverend Baumgartner uh, in the book, um, because he is a, a liberal pluralist um, uh, who is very committed to uh, the idea that uh, there is not uh, one way uh, to get with your God, mm-hmm. uh, that there are any number of of ways and that his job is to try to enable um, uh, the structure by which people uh, can get uh, can can practice their religion authentically he uses the word authentic a lot uh, according to their own faith tradition so there's Baumgartner uh, there is uh, there are two uh, African uh, chaplains uh, Keita who is uh, a Methodist from Sierra Leone uh, and um, uh, the Imam uh, who is uh from Nigeria. Uh then there is a, a Catholic uh priest from Pennsylvania and who and then there's a uh, a rabbi who comes in uh, a couple times a week.
1: Mhm. Mm-hmm. And do these fellows get along?
0: Do they all get along? Yeah. Um yeah, they I mean so the 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 one potential outlier is the 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 Catholic priest who is um uh much more on the on the conservative end of the political spectrum um and so would sometimes squabble uh uh with the other with the other chaplains you know they had they had a very uh a very good working relationship and so that's where you know i um you know they are um look uh Toward the end of my field work, I, I was I was I was talking to one of the uh, one of the the characters in the book, and and I said, you know, I, I gotta I gotta move on. Um, uh, uh, and they said, why? And I said, well, you know, I, I have no function here. And and he said, yeah, you and eighty five percent of our staff. <laughs> um, so. So I don't, you know, it is uh, one of the things. One of the ways I like to frame uh, the the chapel at Greaterford is that it is, you know, one of these post industrial workplaces, like you see in the office or parks and recreation. You know, uh, it's a workplace where nothing is produced. So I don't want to overly romanticize uh, the chaplains. Like there is a kind of grinding. Deadening. You know, these are idealistic men. Uh, they care. Um, uh, they mean well. Uh, uh, but there is a grinding, deadening uh, um, quality to uh, to life at this job. And day in, day out, uh, most everybody um, uh, are you know just trying to get through the day and get home.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I I can I can imagine that. It comes out in the book as well. So tell us a little bit about. Oh, let's introduce the cast of characters. You meet a lot of people, obviously, uh, in the book. Um, four of them are central. Um, so could you introduce us to them? Yeah. Um, so, uh, in any order, it doesn't matter.
0: Yeah. You're right. So, um, uh, this is, uh, Baraka, uh, Teddy, Al, and And Saeed. Yeah. Um, who are set up as, as the central characters. Um, uh, they are all um so like all of the so they they are drawn from the ranks of the chapel workers, so in addition to the chapel regulars who come down and lead and participate in the uh the fifty or so um uh uh worship uh, worship services textual studies and musical group rehearsals that that um that constitute the weekly chapel schedule um you have 15 men who work in the chapel uh, as clerks and janitors um uh labor for which they're compensated between 19 and 41 cents an hour uh with say so save 1 All of the uh, chapel workers are serving uh, the sentence of life without the possibility of parole for homicide. Uh, Pennsylvania is a state where life... makes you parole ineligible. And whereas uh, up through the 90s, uh, there was a fairly robust commutation system uh, with the the, the tough on crime policies that really took over nationwide, but were imposed uh, in Pennsylvania by uh, Governor Tom Ridge, who'd go on to be uh, Bush's first director of Homeland Security, um, they got rid of commutation. Mm -hmm. So you're dealing with men who've been in prison for a very, very long time. uh, they all the chapel workers, as I came to discover, are also from South Philadelphia, and there are ways that uh, in in uh, that um, religious fault lines recapitulate certain kinds of other sociological fault lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that men say, uh, I think this is a slight exaggeration, but there's some measure of truth to it: is that if I didn't know somebody in the outside, I'm not going to get to know him here. So intimacies in the prison uh, carry uh, carry over certain kinds of boundaries uh, from the outside. So. Um, Baraka has been in prison as long as I've been alive. I was born in 1974. He's really, um, uh, I'd say the the central character uh, of the book, uh, and I refer to him as an informal dissertation advisor because he takes me under wing and is very interested in telling me how things are and sometimes, you know, and in in drilling me and sometimes in erecting obstacles, um, uh, he's a he's a very special individual, uh, and he and I have a, a, I think a, a very rich relationship. So he uh, he uh, is from South Philly, serving life um, in and came up uh, in the Nation of Islam cadre, uh, which you know they convert en masse to Sunni Islam upon Elijah Muhammad's death in 1975. But he retains that ethos. Uh, he is you know politically minded, sociologically minded. Um, uh, thinks that uh, what really matters is uh, economics um, and that religion is uh, provides a set of tools for individual and group uplift. And that was the dominant ethos in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, to, to see religious practice in those terms now is to uh, make you something of a dinosaur. So that's Baraka. Um, Al is Baraka's, uh, they're friends from the outside. They, they ran with the same crew. Al, um, uh, used to, uh, also be in the nation of Islam. Although, um, one day, uh, on his, on his way to, uh, hurt someone, um, uh, <laughs> God, you know, he, God struck him dead. And, uh, you know, you know about, um, Al's past, uh, excesses because he's uh now a a bible believing christian and so one of his central practices is to uh deliver testimony to Mm -hmm. uh you know to god's power and part of that is talking about how god was looking out for you even back when you were just an awful 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 person Mm -hmm. this in in the kind of you know uh augustinian tradition of talking about your past sins um so that's al he's he is in um kind of a, he's a, he is moody. he He's a big, heavy man, super moody, uh, and his presence, his his mood really uh, shapes a room. He's also a musician, so he is off and on the head of the Sunday choir, and he has his own gospel group. Uh, there are five gospel groups that trade off performing in, in the Sunday Protestant service. Uh, Al um, is... Uh, becomes very interested over the course of my field work, uh, in, in saving my soul. Mm-hmm. And so he and I end up having very uh, interesting arguments about, uh, what it is that we believe in and why and how it is that we will defend ourselves come the end of days if we're forced to, mm-hmm. um, Teddy is, uh, so Al and, and Baraka are both, uh, in their fifties. Teddy is maybe a decade, their junior, also serving life. Um, also a Christian, uh, also, he's, he is the Al, Al and, and are in some sense, finished products. They are um, self-controlled in the way that when you've been in a prison for a very, very long time, you are able to control yourself uh, because if you can't control yourself, you will get hurt uh, during the day or you will end up in the hole because you'll, you'll react to some kind of humiliation or to some kind of threat. Um, and you also, uh, if you can't control yourself uh, at night, then you will succumb to all sorts of despair. Uh, Teddy is younger and and not all the way uh, not all the way where they are yet, and he struggles a lot. He struggles a lot because uh, he still has a lot of hope that he's going to get out of prison, and and like everybody else there, he's working on his case uh, to some degree, and 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 that you know that's, um, uh means like investing a lot of um, a lot of hope in some very far fetched um, uh, scenarios. Um, uh, he is, uh, incredibly funny, um, really human. Uh, he, he is to me the, the most, uh, uh, human element, uh, in, in the chapel, um, uh, because he's he hurts and and he's 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 so it the men take seriously this, you know, nobody likes a downer uh, There's one of the chapel workers who likes to meditate about how how god-awful everything is and nobody wants to be around that uh, You know because it's you know, it's too easy to become depressed and so Teddy is generally quite positive But when he's struggling you can really tell he's mm-hmm. struggling um, uh, And then there's Said, who is Teddy's childhood friend. There are actually four of them, uh, three of them central characters who grew up in the same block in South Philadelphia, wow. all serving life without the possibility of parole. So, you know, for people who want to uh, see these crimes, it's in some sense the sui generis actions of of, of bad men. Um, you know, clearly the yeah. uh, the crime happens somewhere in the middle of the story. These 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 four boys, and three of them are uh, featured. All you know, uh, they're not boys anymore, but they were boys, and uh, uh, they grew up together, and and and. They they all were thrown into circumstances that led to terrible choices that destroyed other people's lives and, and destroyed their own lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Saeed is uh, friends with, with 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 Teddy, and he is a, uh, a Muslim. Uh, he is a, uh, a Salafi Muslim, and and Salafism is the the dominant religious mode in the city of Philadelphia. Now, uh, it is. Um, uh, a practical perfectionism, a sort of post secular um approach. You know, this is Salafism is a kind of global flagship of the thing that's often called Wahhabism. Uh so it's about, you know, you want to live your life just as as the the prophets did. Um uh sorry, just as excuse me, that, that was that was heretical. Just as the Prophet Muhammad mm-hmm, and, yeah. and his and and the pious predecessors did. Um, you know, in some way all Sunnis aspire to that. As Salafis really take it to a uh, uh uh an extreme. Um uh so they become, um, you know, very personal purity practices uh, take on a special importance in uh, in the performance of self and in, and in and in the the designation of people who are who are doing uh, Islam uh, the wrong way. Um, also of interest is that the particular strain of Salafism that dominates in Philadelphia um, uh, is avowedly apolitical uh and it, it i think that it is it's because of a particular history in the middle east uh this uh failed coup at the grand mosque in, in 1979 that this medkhali strain of salafism uh swears off politics but then also um you could see why a a traditionalist African American Muslim in the city of Philadelphia after 9/11 would want to be very clear to certain kinds of state authorities that they're not about, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, engaging in politics. And then, similar, but that works well with these with these men because they also are adamant in showing uh, the the sect that used to belong to the Nation of Islam that they are uh, that they are true Muslims and so they're not merely just doing politics uh, in the name of religion. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, Said is um, uh, very serious and doctrinaire, but also rather hilarious. Um, uh, he's uh, like many of these men. He is his background is unschooled, but he is an intellectual now. Um, uh, you know, people who serve life in prison, uh, like graduate students and like not that many other, um, sectors of our society, uh, have a lot of time to, uh, work on, uh, intellectual matters if they feel so inclined. And Said, um, is very serious about studying Arabic. Uh, he takes the Arabic class of another prisoner once a week and he is avid, he's a student in, uh, Villanova University has a bachelor of arts program and he's a student in that. Uh Um, and so that's Said. And then the, the week that I selected, this is a, the, the book which begins Monday and concludes on Sunday, and an actual week, the week being uh, in January 2006, uh, which I selected in order for it to be a, a quote-unquote normal week. I, I didn't want um, it to be during Ramadan or Christmas season. I wanted something that was just normal and boring um, uh, in the way that life in prison is, is regimented and normal and boring and, and, and repetitive. But it so happens that something happens um, happened during the week. Uh, um, something that was exceptional, but also generic uh, to their lives there. And what that something was is that on Tuesday, uh, Saeed is, is picked up uh, uh, on suspicion of something or other and is uh, kept first in custody in his cell. And then he's moved uh, to the hole. And um, and that's the last I've ever seen Said.
1: Really? So, yeah, right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, you mentioned that the yeah. book does go through um, seven days that you hoped were typical, but weren't typical. It turned out. Um, but I don't know. Maybe it is pretty typical that someone disappears in prison. That's like right. That's yeah, right. I,
0: that's exactly right. Yeah. And it's also the case that you know this is the informs in the one of the things that informs uh, the choice of the form and the choice of the method uh, is you know a, a faith in 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 de- in describing particularities that um, you know all generic things if you pay close enough attention turn out to be exceptional, yeah. right? And that's why you end up, uh, you know, that's why you read literature. Sure. And sometimes that's what um, the mode of, of, you know, academic form where you're making an argument and you're selecting uh, the evidence that fits your argument sometimes ends up washing away uh, some of that, uh, uh, that, that, Diversity and plurality mm-hmm. um, and idiosyncrasy, and in, in, in the form of the book that I, that you know I've chosen is to really dial
1: up those things. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, let's tell the story then. Uh, a typical day is Monday. What happens on Monday?
0: Monday is atypical, only in that um, uh, there are no uh, activities on the schedule. Right. So, um, as I, you know the, the the chapel schedule, there are there are let's see one two three four five formal spaces in the chapel. Uh, where uh, where activities take place. There's the main chapel, there's the annex, uh, which was built uh, onto the chapel um, after 1995, when uh, this new regime of cultural control was instituted. Prior to 95, the various Muslim groups all had their own mosques in the basement under the chapel. That was shut down after 95, and then they built this big cinder block annex. So you have the the main chapel, the annex, and then two classrooms and then something that's called the conference room where the musical groups uh rehearse. Um and uh so any you know, there are three activity blocks every day. Um uh eight in the morning to eleven in the morning, one in the afternoon to three thirty in the afternoon, and six in the evening to eight thirty in the evening. And uh every day except for Monday, you have this slate of 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 Worship services, Bible studies, musical group rehearsals. Monday, uh, the chapel's closed, so um, Monday is just the chapel workers and uh, uh, the Imam and Reverend Baumgartner uh, mm-hmm. who are there, and uh, you know, and and uh, the correctional officer who who's on during the day, and um, and Monday, you know, people sit around. And, right, but don't uh,
1: you, I mean? Aren't there? I mean. Uh, how do I best put this and not be not reveal my total ignorance of many things aren't there some religions in which you have to do stuff every day
0: <laughs> that's not ignorant at all okay, right um, you know right I mean, so this is this is <laughs> right so um, you know Back, yeah, you you do, but the, you, when you're in prison, you don't get to don't do get it to every, do day. every day. And this is yeah. a, this is this uh, this is allows me to provide a better answer to a question you asked earlier. So you know, back in the day, in this in this period before 1995, um, where the Muslims had their spaces downstairs, um, they were able to make corporate prayer uh, for three of the five daily prayers. Mm-hmm. and they could stay down there and they could be so there are 5 at at, at Greaterford there are 5 i believe there are 5 daily counts where the prisoners are all counted
1: mm-hmm.
0: nowadays you have to be in your cell to be counted back in the older days uh you could be out in an activity so um uh it used to be that the muslims could you know could um mm. could make prayer um uh, uh as they say um you know three times a day now the muslims are allowed they they can make um, always, they can do Juma on Friday, and you know, depending on uh, where you are in the calendar year and what time exactly prayer happens, it, the chapel workers and other Muslims that might happen to be around can make prayer together uh, at odd times. But no, they they get one yeah. corporate prayer a week, and that's where the the um, the it's uh, the the mandate equal protection does have a way of leveling things down to. Uh, a more kind of normative um, uh protestant and especially liberal protestant way of doing religion yeah. right in which like i mean ha, what you you have to go to you have to go to mosque more than once a week
1: right right yeah. so
0: yeah. so i mean that's that is you know throughout this the kind of the, the very very real religious diversity right. that 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 you see in the chapel is regulated by by protestant norms right. you know that norms that are
1: imposed with a hammer yeah so um I don't, I don't know if there's a name for that but it should be called the hanukkah effect you know what i mean (laughs) yeah yeah the way that things (laughs) drift yeah yeah, absolutely
0: but you know but the way that these things work is that they work dialectically right so you have it's the very hanukkah effect of (laughs) of liberal protestantism that also informs the the you know what would be called the backlash and the you know which is the production of things like protestant fundamentalism and uh um salafism that precisely reject that kind of mm-hmm. um mealy-mouthed yeah. um oh this this little very this this religion that's supposed to have this very uh nice little niche within the kind of secular order right mm-hmm. that that's dialectical mm-hmm. you know it's like it's that very yeah. that the, the, the drift toward one uh necessitates in some way the, uh, the the development of the other
1: mm-hmm. yeah so let's move on to tuesday then uh tell yeah. us what happened tuesday
0: uh, so Tuesday you have this, this, uh, this, this slate of activities and so, you know, the, the morning begins with, uh, the Episcopal group, uh, praying and, uh, and, and the parole violators having their Bible study and, uh, uh, and in the afternoon you have muslims coming down to study although only a few of them um uh in the evening you have the jews having a a, a study session and you have a group called yoke fellows having uh, a christian fellowship um and so i drift in and out of those activities and uh you know and but i also spend uh, uh intimate time with this kind of growing cast of of 10 or so uh m- of the chapel workers that are really featured. But it's also on Tuesday where you have this, uh, this real event. And and, and that's where um, uh, suddenly this, this this guy, uh, um, uh, his name is uh, in the book, he's called Jabril. And he comes down, he's, he's a real character because he's, uh, he used to box and there used to be a traveling boxing team in the prison. This is back in like a much older era. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, um, he's kind of a celebrity. He, he carries himself with a real air um he's really stylish uh he's a Salafi Muslim with a kind of beard that he pulls and some of the Salafi you know the Salafi mark themselves by wearing their pants high and honoring a hadith that says that you can't let your pants drag in the hellfire and they and they uh some of them pull their beards to a point uh anyway so he comes and he's he's he carries himself with a celebrity air because he taught um Bernard Hopkins how to fight mm-hmm. Bernard Hopkins uh now, no longer, but for about a decade, uh, uh, was the middleweight champion of the world uh, who learned how to fight at Graterford Prison. Anyway, so he shows up in the chapel and he's looking for information about Saeed. And that's where um, uh, everybody, that's where you find out that, uh, that Said has been picked up on suspicion of something or other. Mm-hmm. And it kind of shatters the, the numb routine right. um, with this kind of air of palpable excitement and right. concern.
1: Right, so the waters are disturbed, and what happens? Yes, yeah.
0: yeah, yes, exactly. The water is disturbed, yeah, and, you know, and really by, uh, and it's quite, you know, every, there, these everyone is very concerned for him and uh and it's and it's troubling for the chaplains because the day in day out vibe of in in the chapel not necessarily of like your your random uh prisoner who comes down for services but the day in day out vibe among the the chaplains and the correctional officers who work in the chapel and the the fifteen prisoner workers the 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 vibe there is that of a workplace and they're yeah, all I was gonna say, they're all colleagues like that, yeah. they're colleagues in their own in their own in, in, in their way. And like, as I said, as I said comparing it comparing to the office and parks and recreation, you know, there's a lot of joking around and playing and all that. And, um, and then when events happen where the kind of imposition of that kind of state violence, um, everyone is kind of thrown into their proper corner, uh, you know, uh, either as the free person. Uh, whose job it is to be invested in the in the order uh, of custody or a prisoner whose job it is to be um, kind of a suspect uh and to be vulnerable uh so that's that's everyone's thrown into that uh but you know w- w- by week's end uh those ripples in the pond have been have been stilled it only takes a few you know a day or two uh and everything is kind of you know quote unquote back to normal uh mm-hmm. of course you know the, one of the hopes uh in writing the book uh is to um is to call attention to the 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 many modes of this quote unquote normal and to show just how uh abnormal and insane that it is
1: mhm mhm i, I- it's very interesting you say this i was i was interviewing someone who uh studies um uh so, so german perpetrators in world war II, and and I, and he was in the military himself and i asked him what he learned from the study and and one of the things he said is that you know too often when we think of groups of people we think of them as homogeneous when when in fact it's the case that they're all individuals and it's kind of, they they relate to each other differently and ju- just as in life you know he says we sort of forget this and you know if you were to think of the chapel as a unit it doesn't really make much sense because all these people are different And they all react differently to things. They have different relations to one another. And to understand what goes on there, you really kind of have to know them. This is what this fellow said about military units as well, that they're all personalities, you know, that they're people. I mean,
0: that's –
1: yes, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, go ahead. No, no, no. Continue. Yeah, and and that basically to understand anything that happens – in this case, it was mass murder. In order to understand exactly how people reacted, you have to know their relations to other people. It just, yeah. It's incomprehensible without that knowledge. And, and he was able to get that in his study. And he also said when he was a tank commander in Iraq, it was the same thing. That, that yeah. In order to get anything done, you had to know these people.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is where, uh, this, you know, this is why the, this book um, takes the floor more of literature than of scholarship. Yeah. And, and it does so for political reasons, especially when you're writing about a class that's so easily um, pre-known right? That's so easily known as, uh, you know, because we do define prisoners generally by virtue of of their crimes. uh, You know, we know what these people are. And uh, no, we we don't, right? Because that's the the fact that we're willing to reduce uh, someone to a single action of their life. um, That tells us as much about us as it tells us about them right mm-hmm. we're at a moment in time where that kind of brutal hermeneutic is is what we do to people who are incarcerated but you know that that tells us about ourselves it doesn't necessarily tell us about these people so you know uh, this is this is the the struggle uh, and this is why you know i i um really have feel and uh, called to giving an account of, of just the, the, per, the, the particulars of things and and, and the texture of things mm-hmm. um, you know you can there is structure is real um, historical moments are are real and in some way shape the range of, of 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 options that we can take. And so this is a book about mass incarceration, and it is a book about American pluralism, and it is it is a book about neoliberalism, right? And those uh, those are as as the structures that. Uh, enable the range of choices uh you know those things are very real, but on the ground you're just dealing with a always with just a mess of uh of personalities um and circumstances and varieties and that's really in this book feels like there is both analytically and politically uh real value to uh to getting at that texture right and mm-hmm. um you know it's it's easy to uh, in you know in some way commitments. Commitments are always to particulars. You know, it's like you can love cats, but it's like, but it's your cat. It's yeah. your cat that you right. love. You know, it's like this is the problem with Alyosha Karamazov, right? Yeah. Alyosha Karamazov, he loves all people equally. And you know what? He's like a bad Christian at yeah. the end of the day because it's too flat and it's actually dehumanizing because he doesn't actually see the other, I yeah. think Dostoevsky would say. Yeah. And certainly Ivan would say. Yeah. And And, you know, and like one can have commitments to prisoners, um, you know, but my relationship to the problems of, of mass incarceration in America, at least, uh, my, problem, my relationship has changed dramatically because I am now bound to a set of individuals, mm-hmm. like via relationships. And, and maybe there's no way to communicate that through writing, and maybe there's no way that my reader can develop those kind of relationships. But at the very least, I can model what it is to develop those kind of relationships, and, and the reader can think about uh, how he or she uh, is bound
1: uh, in their own lives to people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, it's interesting you say that. And it's one of the reasons I I, I wanted to read the book, because I happen to know by another connection, a lot of people that have been in prison and Mm -hmm. not to give away the punchline, but I have seen them redeemed. And it's a, Uh it's a miracle to me because these were bad people. (laughs) and They're really not bad people anymore. I can't figure it out exactly, but they aren't bad people anymore. But anyway, we'll come to that in a second and let's move on through the week. What happens on Wednesday?
0: Um, I mean, it's because so time in on the one hand on the book is linear. And then on the other hand, time is not linear at all. Uh, so beginning on Tuesday, uh, as the week moves ahead, um, uh, throughout there are all these wormholes where I get into other things that happen in my field work and, and especially in uh, uh, landmarks and getting to know these men. But really, be, so beginning on, on Tuesday, uh, when on Tuesday afternoon you have the, uh, uh um, uh, the the session uh, Talim where Muslims are able to study in the chapel and you see that there are only actually five Muslims there even though uh, on paper a quarter of the prison is Muslim and the question is why are there only five there mm-hmm. and to answer that question uh, I go back uh, in my field work to what people have told me but then go back to 1995 and tell the story of the raid and the raid where this uh, this um, uh, regime of cultural, con- uh, this regime of carceral control uh, was imposed. Um, uh, the book, among other things, tries to be genealogical. So uh, whereas it's very, the book I felt like had to take place in the present tense because the present tense is in some real way the only tense that, that is real. And the, and if any kind of uh, radical revolutionary change is going to take place, uh, it always has to be uh, in the present tense to be effective. If, if it remains in the future tense, it's just a kind of a messianic deferral. So the the book is very committed to how, you know, the, the practice of things is in the present, and the very fact that it's in the present means that even things that seem to be settled—this is—I'm you know, about to go teach Nietzsche uh, in, in half an hour. But even, even, and especially things that that are present themselves as being uh, settled uh, are actually highly contested yeah. and therefore fragile. So, uh, you know, that that is why the books in the present. But meanwhile, it's so as to not reify the, the arbitrary uh, contested set of contingencies that you find in the present, the book feels compelled in some way to give an, a historical account of how that came to be, mm-hmm. both in terms of uh, the, the revolutions uh, in prison administration and uh, the major revolutionary changes in normative Muslim practice. Right. So on Wednesday, so this begins on Tuesday with the 90s, and on Wednesday I go back to uh, the 70s and 80s, and on Thursday uh, I go back to the late 60s and early 70s uh, to show, you know, this kind of general uh, the split between the nation of Islam and what would have been called Orthodox up to the present day with this kind of uh, residual uh, uh, politically engaged Waratine Muhammad faction and the dominant Salafi faction. And by Friday, I, I'm back in the present with that story and, uh, and, and sort of do a kind of uh, analysis uh, of those groups and the present and, and, and the various things that they disagree about and how and why and then on and then on Saturday, I actually um in in a kind of uh, a, a sabbatarian fermata uh, in the course of the week um i I go back to the very beginning of time uh, and I rec- and I recount uh, the beginning of time from creation or something like it uh, to through the ascendancy of mass incarceration. That happens in about four or five paragraphs, but I include that because. That's that's in dialogue with the with the men of the chapel for whom uh, the fact of creation or, or when creation happened and why creation happened and according to whom creation happened has such a direct bearing to how one is to live one's life and you know as a secular or I said secularist earlier that's you know that's probably exaggeration but as a secular you know I'm not to me who created the world or how the world came into being and why you know is does not really Matter for how I am to live my life and how I am to live my life is itself something that you have to figure out uh, you know o- over the course of uh, 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 if you know experience perceives essence and so you have to figure it out and you 're constantly negotiating between competing uh, imperatives, but anyway, so I do give that account of uh, of as far as I can tell um, how is it that the world came into being and how is it that we end up here at this moment mm-hmm. and by extension um, uh, uh, look how you know something like mass incarceration uh that is so pervasive and it's so hard to imagine our world without it look at how um at how freaking new it is and how weird it is oh, yeah. and you know historically mm-hmm. uh these kinds of institutions of modernity are so new and so weird and um and uh yeah let's uh let's figure out um a, a different way of going about things
1: yeah it's interesting you put it that way because sometimes i think uh, and I ask my students this sometimes. I used to say, you know, values change a lot and there are things that even people that we very much admire believed that we can't believe they believed. You know, Margaret Sanger, like euthanasia or something like that. Um, and I always ask them, like, uh, you know, we're no different than them. And so which of the things that we believe is right is going to be wrong in a hundred years? You know, exactly. exactly.
0: <laughs> I mean, and, and in this respect, you know, it's like this is, uh, uh, you know, Antonin Scalia, uh, not necessarily an intellectual hero of mine, uh, also says, you know, that values don't only evolve, they can also decay, right? And so this is where um, it isn't just that values change, it's that, you know, it was people fighting adamantly uh, in the beginning uh, of the 19th century, taking a position that was very, uh, at the time, radical, that, Uh, white people ought not own black people, uh, that it was the actions of men and women that made over time, uh, uh, you know... in addition to, of course, structural changes that made that position over time uh, abhorrent, right? And um, you know, a future. It, so it, it isn't. I have no faith that that time or history is on our side. Uh, but a future in which we don't look back at our contemporary practices of of uh, incarcerating so many of our uh, fellow citizens, especially in the United States, where we have you know uh, twenty, uh, we have a fifth of the world's population and twenty five percent of its prisoners. A future where we don't look back on that. With horror it is a dystopia.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with you completely. I can't forget who it was, and some some listener will undoubtedly remind me. But the, a fellow said it was an English. Who was it? But anyway, it was a, a someone in the nineteenth century. I think so you want to take the measure of society, look at their hospitals yeah. and prisons. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's, it
0: it's a funny Bill or somebody. I, but I try yeah. to. It's actually so um, to understand a society, I look at its prisons. It's it's people i don't know where that 's from, and it frustrates me and it's quoted by one of the by one of the characters in the book, and it 's actually uh, in the publisher's weekly review he mention he, he, he cites that and it 's generally attributed to constance garnett's translation of uh, 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 of dostoevsky's wow. um i 'm um, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on his uh his, his prison
1: novel um, uh, i don't know
0: Anyway, I'm to but, say, I, yeah. but I tried to chase, I tried to uh, trace, you know, I tried to trace down uh, the citation and I was unable to locate it. I'll yeah, look maybe, for you. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I got
1: good Google foo. I think I can probably find it. Uh, but I, I, the way I heard it was look at their hospitals and prisons, not just yeah. not just prisons. But, you know, we can't get through the week and we're taking up a lot of your time and you got to go t- teach Nietzsche. But there are a couple of questions I want to ask you if you have another couple of seconds. I do, sure. Okay, good. So one question, really there are only two questions. One question is, and I don't know if this is answerable given the uh, individuality of the people you talk about, what does religion do for people in prison? Yeah. Um, you can't just say, well, that's, that's a ridiculous question, Marshall. You are know, you an idiot?
0: I, <laughs> no, no, this is, so, I mean, look, the, the book has this fluid, uh, uh, novelistic style, but the first editor that I, I ended up working with two editors at Ferrar Strauss, and the first editor that I worked with was you know, demanded that I, that I give account, that I give answers to questions like that. And yeah. so I do provide them in a set of uh, what I call feces that precede the various chapters beginning on Tuesday. And it's, um, Uh, I provide in those those passages of the book, you know, um, a variety of different ways to answer that question. And and I'm not committed to any one because I'm I'm of the belief that, you know, the theoretical framework that you bring to answer that question goes a long way toward answering the question itself. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of uh, paranoid uh, practice theory version of that question, which is what does religion do? It takes convicts and makes them prisoners, which is to say uh, a people with the know-how to survive prison. Right, that's one of the things that it does. Uh, what does it do? Well, um, it takes men. This is a different answer to that question. Uh, it takes men uh, who have struggled with impulse control and gives them the vocabulary and the practices to, uh, in, to uh, engage in kinds of, of in personal mastery where they don't just react uh what does it do uh, it takes men uh who uh who had a very brutal and individualist uh notion uh of manhood and it transvalues manhood such that manhood isn't about defeating others manhood is about surrendering oneself you know, so it, there's there's really a, a great number of answers to that question, mm-hmm. and I and I try to provide them in a book, uh, and and I provide them in a and this is apropos of of, of the structure of the book and of time, they're in the book in a latter temporality, they're in it's it's th- those are presented in the book in a and it's years later and and i it's, it's subtly done but it's you know it's uh, the first thesis introduced with the preamble um years from now at a critical moment in the composition of this book i will pen 10 theses mm-hmm. so it's after having struggled with all this material for years and years that that i come to posit certain kinds of answers to those questions and i share them with the reader uh but the but that those kinds of clean synopses um are meant to stand in tension to the the flow and mess of the Mm -hmm,
1: rest of the book. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sure, that's fair. So let me ask you another um, unfair question. I I don't know if it's an unfair question. It'll be my final question before I ask you the final question. So I guess that would be the penultimate question, to be fancy about it. (laughs) Um, So uh, you mentioned your own uh, religiosity, such as it is. Uh, How did uh, writing this book change your own religious practice and beliefs? Uh,
0: It didn't. I mean I, I I I'm a work in progress in in, in that regard too but um uh but it, it, you know it didn't I I came in as a um uh you know uh I, I'm I am a dyed in the wool um ethical Jew uh you know so even though I have a, a a Yeshivaish background uh uh um from from the time that I was very young um I always understood that uh, if there are two, two classes of commandments, commandments that pertain to our obligations to God and the commandments that pertain to our obligations to our fellow man and woman, uh, I always uh, was strongly on the side of the latter of those, being the ones that matter. And that's always been true for me, whether I've been uh, in, the, in the habit of going to synagogue or not going yeah. to synagogue. I mean, it so happens that I now have a couple of kids, a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and uh, and and the ways that we work in the early 21st century are so grueling. And especially if you're an academic, the boundaries between work and not work are so hard mm-hmm. to erect. And so for those reasons, you know, for that reason, uh, I've, I, my, my wife and I, we've, we've fought hard to institute uh, the practice of the Sabbath, for example. For and you. in addition to that, in addition to that, you know, there's like uh, going to synagogue is a solution to the weekend problem. Cause suddenly you have these little kids and you right. don't, you've no idea what to do with them. And especially if you live in Rochester, New York, you can't just take them out. So, you know, we go to synagogue now and, but, th- but those are all, you know, and that's, this isn't a, a remotely cynical. It's quite earnest, yeah. but, uh, but, you know, th- that's the kind of thing that's affected my relationship to my practice. Uh, 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 the, the relevant practices of my time at, at Greaterford have to do with, uh, you know, a, a different set of concerns and that is okay. So, uh, I've, this, uh, this has been a great experience. These men gave me a lot, um, this book uh, is going to do things for me. It has done things for me that will uh, allow me to have the sort of career I want. Okay. So what, what then am I in for now? You know, right. what am I in for? Right. And, 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 and as far as I can tell, if I'm not in for life in some significant sense, then I'm a scoundrel. Right. So, um, so I, so, you know, I need to be in for it for life and what that means can change over time. But, uh, you know, I, I, I teach in prisons. Uh, I, I, I try to, uh, organize, um, with, uh, with other kinds of, uh, activists and people who are trying to uh, change the way that we punish. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's, uh, yeah, I, I, I need to be uh, in for it in that regard.
1: That's, that's a good answer. I like that answer very much. I mean, just to reflect on my experience a little bit, and I've already talked about it, when I kind of came into the church, so to say, uh, into my spiritual community, the thing that really impressed me was the fact that the people who uh, really had had very rough backgrounds and, and were rough characters were really transformed by the experience. And, and it um, provided kind of a model for me. And it provided a certain amount of hope uh, that that there could be a kind of um, personal transformation through through a certain kind of action or practice. I mean, I don't know if That's... I don't know if the prisoners felt that themselves, but I definitely. No, yes, yes. I'm the one who's somewhat skeptical
0: about that because uh, I have a much more kind of fluid post-structuralist notion of the self. Whereby, what is it that we're reifying when we when we say yeah. that someone is essentially this or that? But I, I'm a huge outlier in that. And a greater yeah. prison, that is precisely the anthropology that people have. People yeah. are essentially something, and it is precisely via that kind of. Uh, uh, experience of rupture of taking a shahada of giving yourself over to christ and then the 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 regime of practices that such a conversion necessitates that you do become fundamentally something else that is the dominant anthropology and the language of transformation is precisely the language that uh men uh uh whether they be christian or muslim or something else that is
1: the language that they use yeah yeah i put myself in that category i think i'm a different person than when i came in i you know i did think i was one thing (laughs) <laughs> and the record shows yeah. that I was. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, and now well there's you it. know <laughs> but there's a real ethical utility to that kind of narrative, right? Yeah, it's like uh-huh. to to mark what I you know uh, I was lost and now I'm found right. to, to, to mark what you once were and to, and to assert and to declare publicly with the community, I am not what I once was. Yeah. I am now living for something else. Yeah, that's, that's an right. exceedingly important practice, mm-hmm. whether you're a, you know, it, in some ways it's, it's like when you have a good therapist, the good therapist helps you with that practice too. Yeah. And when you have a bad therapist, <laughs> the bad therapist allows you to, to, uh, to, to linger indefinitely in that state of being non-transformed. Yeah, you know right. what I mean? I mean, yeah. so, so in any case, it is, I think it is a uh, that to, to make those kind of declarations in a community with fellowship
1: is a central practice for self-craft, whether one is religious or secular. That's extraordinarily well put. It's just really, really extraordinarily well put. Um, so today we've been talking to uh, uh, Joshua Dubler about his book, Down in the Chapel, Religious Life in an American Prison. Uh, Joshua, I want one very brief question. What are you working on now? So I'm working on, on
0: a couple of things um, the first uh, pertains to uh, the being in for it as I, as I put it uh, um, uh, I'm working on a book uh, called uh, Break Every Yoke and that's language uh, from Isaiah that the abolitionists used, Break Every Yoke, Religion Power and the End of Mass Incarceration and that's a book that I'm writing with a guy named Vincent Lloyd who's a philosopher at Syracuse and Chris mm-hmm. Garces who's a, an anthropologist at Cornell and we've been working together for a couple of years now and we're trying to Uh, you know, the animating kind of impulse of that book is that uh, you know, from penitentiary days and certainly uh, up through the end of the 20th century uh, religion has helped to uh, underwrite, American religion has helped to underwrite American mass incarceration in a number of ways and it's going to take new kinds of conceptualizations uh, of religion and new religious practices to end mass incarceration. So we're we're working on that book together. Um, uh, Hopefully we'll have a a finished uh, draft of that, uh, you know, within uh, the calendar year. Uh, And then uh, I'm also be, beginning to work or, uh, on, I think my next uh, man, uh, monograph that I'm going to write myself is a c- sort of cultural history of guilt in America, uh, a story that takes place at the, kind of, at the intersection of, uh, of criminal justice and, and psychoanalysis and yeah. theology and, yeah. and pop culture.
1: Yeah, well, those like great great projects. Good luck with them. And let me say to everybody again, we've been talking to Joshua uh, Dubler about his book, Down in the Chapel, Religious Life in American Prison. I hope everybody goes out and, and buys it. Joshua, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so very much for having me. I've enjoyed it tremendously. Absolutely. And let me say that I'm Marshall Poe. I'm actually the host of New Books in History, but I'm subbing on uh, New Books in Religion because I really wanted to read Joshua's book. Brought Joshua's book. And let me also say uh, thank you to everybody who listens to this podcast and have a good week.